Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. All right, so as we're recording this on Wednesday at 3 p.m., Ty Cobb, the president's attorney, one of them, has announced he is, quote-unquote, retiring. Yeah, and John Bolton's mustache has erupted in victory whoops because yeah. so if ty Cobb has a handlebar mustache what is the bolton mustache called uh, i think it's guillotine. a 70s porn star <laughs> 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 it's the technical term for it it's the porn stage. hello and welcome to rational security the 49 questions muller mustache edition oof it's good it gets it all into the title I am Shane, Har- Shane Harris, hairless reporter. I cannot grow a mustache to save my life. I bet you'd look good with a mustache. I, 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 but I, I could, but it's not possible. <laughs> I think it, like, it won't happen. In honor of Ty Cobb and John Bolton, we should all wear <laughs> fake mustaches for the next few we'll days. We'll record us with our fake yeah, next fingers over our lips. Uh, the I'm, title of this week's episode, by the way, was Matt Kahn's suggestion. Yeah. Wait, we, we Attribution, credit. Matt Kahn, pun too. master credit and audio bl- engineer. Credit or blame. I'm not sure. Which <laughs> Matt is the secret brains in the operation. <laughs> I am here in the jungle studio or jungle, maybe we should call it jungle salon in honor of our styling hair mustachery. mustachery. <laughs> <laughs> the Jungle Mustachery with Susan Hennessy and Ben Wittes. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. No uh, Tammy. What's that? No, no Tammy. she's off. She what? is in Lebanon. Lebanon. Tammy is uh, monitoring an election. What? Excellent. The Lebanese elections are this weekend, and Tammy is an, is an election monitor. Wow. That makes my week seem like really insignificant. What are you doing this week, Shane? <laughs> I got a new car. I'm writing some stories. I'm very much looking forward to the CIA director's nomination next, hearing next week. Yeah, that's going to be exciting. It's going to be good. Uh, but this week, <laughs> too much for one podcast. Robert Mueller has lots of questions. But no facial hair. But no facial hair. For President Trump also has no facial hair, but he does take Propecia. We'll talk about that. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. <laughs> that is the name I can never say on this goddamn podcast. Bibi. So, Mine is Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad. I have to like, think it through the whole every time. Uh, BB says Iran lied about its nuclear weapons program. He held up a big big sign that said Iran lied. <laughs> in case you missed it, I have to say I do not usually side with uh, the Iranian government about anything. No, but when Zawad Sharif uh, uh, tweeted making fun of Netanyahu's uh, propensity to do cartoon presentations. Yeah. I have to say, just on the merits of the aesthetic, yeah. I I had some sympathy with the Iranian position. <laughs> uh, and lastly, we'll talk about John Kelly, who has reportedly described the president as an unhinged, quote-unquote, idiot. Uh, first, let's talk about the, the 49 questions. So the New York Times, of course, broke a story this week uh, that uh, Robert Mueller and his investigators had given Trump's lawyers – 
questions slash topic areas that they would like to discuss in an interview with the president and the president's lawyers distilled these down into uh, some number of questions, at least 49 of which were then given the New York Times. So this is actually Robert Mueller saying to Trump's lawyers, here's the kind of things we want to talk about. And Trump's lawyers sort of organizing those into a list of questions um, and then those becoming public. So I think this it, it is fair to say this is probably the most detailed look that we've gotten so far into the line of questioning and the topics that it wants that Mueller wants to cover. Um, ben, I'd like to your just kind of initial top line reaction to it. Uh, it not a lot surprising in here. Uh, and so far as these kind of refer to publicly known events, but maybe we should also be reading something into that, too. But what do you think? Well, a few things. So first of all, um, I think it is really interesting uh, that these topics do really quite obviously are within the four walls of Rod Rosenstein's original referral to Bob Mueller. And that, you know, for people who are worried about the sort of what we used to call independent counselitis, you know, the propensity of special prosecutors to kind of expand their jurisdiction. This does not give a lot of evidence of that. The questions are overwhelmingly on two core issues. One is obstruction of justice and the other is, uh, you know, what the president calls collusion um, or no collusion. Um, and, you know, the the questions are pretty much the questions that subjects that you would expect Mueller to be thinking about if he were uh, doing a serious investigation in those two areas. Uh, the second thing is that, you know, there has been a bit of a debate uh, about how serious the obstruction of justice investigation is. Uh, this seems to me to suggest that Mueller at least thinks it's quite serious because he is spending a lot of time thinking about what's in the president's head. And it seems like most of the questions. Most of the questions about are about state of mind related yep. to obstruction. And that seems to me, if you go back a few months, we had been arguing about not we, the group of us, but this uh, we as a society had been arguing about, you know, can the president obstruct justice through acts that he is constitutionally entitled to uh, engage in, like managing the executive branch, firing FBI directors, you know, uh, giving instructions to the Justice Department, that sort of thing. Uh, and I don't think you would be inquiring as to the state of mind of the person doing those things if you didn't think it was at least theoretically possible that those things could be obstruction of justice depending on the person's state of mind. And so I do think that there's a, 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 an interesting window into Mueller's theory about how the, these actions engage the obstruction of justice statutes in that regard. So I think there are three ways to to read this or to sort of draw conclusions from them. And, and Ben has written a little bit about this. Ryan Goodman also sort of uh, has raised this on just security. And that's that you can read these questions sort of on the no stone unturned theory, that they don't necessarily mean anything, but that there's some kind of lead or question somewhere. And so Mueller just wants to ask these questions for purpose of closing the books and saying, you know, we're 100 percent done. Uh, you know, the, the second theory is that he has 
negative information, right? That he's asking these questions because he has underlying evidence of a crime. And so he wants to see either if Trump is willing to admit that, is going to perjure himself, right? That there's a lot of people that are sort of reading this and saying, <clears throat> these these are the kind of questions you, you would ask if you already had substantial evidence of an underlying criminal conspiracy of some kind. Then the third sort of nebulous category is these are genuine questions, right? These are the big open issues a huge elements of sort of the obstruction investigation uh, sort of are about state of mind, and, and they are questions that only Trump can answer. And so that this is not, you know, it's not a perjury trap. It's not, you know, it's just genuinely, you know, Mueller uh, thinks there is a legitimately significant answer. It's not just checking boxes, but he hasn't predetermined what it is, and, and he wants to get Trump's read. Which I think is why in our reporting, I think, bears this out, that um – the proposal from Trump's lawyers that they submit written questions, which Trump would then respond to in writing, is insufficient for Mueller. What he appears to be driving at is I need to be able to sit down with the president or have my investigator sit down with him to, as Susan said, I mean, get at these questions of what were you thinking? What was your intent? What was your motivation? And I don't think you can really do that in, in written responses, right? I think that's right. I mean, one one problem with trying to parse out Mueller's intentions and, and no pun intended, state of mind based on the president's lawyer's list of subjects that Mueller's people told them that they want to discuss. So there's a game of telephone going on sure. here. And how much spin is being injected into the game is a sort of hard question to know the answer to. But one of the problems is that all the data prove all the hypotheses. So if you believe as um, Ty Cobb, may he, may his, may his name, mustache may, rest may, may his me memory <laughs> be a blessing. well-earned retirement. He's going to look all sloppy every day now. <laughs> if you believe, <laughs> you know, he's not going to tweak the mustache and groom it quite <clears throat> as carefully. Um if you believe, as he does, that the president is, you know, that the investigation is winding down and they're just getting ready to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's and then they're going to be done by last Thanksgiving. Uh, sorry, last Christmas. Sorry, the end of the year. Sorry, the beginning of this year. But soon. Um, then the fact that they want to ask these questions is just as Susan says, you know, just the kind of like Comey's questions to Hillary, right? We had already dis decided that absent some, you know, some new break, new major information or a lie, there, this was going nowhere, but we had to get her on the record, right? That's the way Comey describes the Hillary interview. And you could imagine that that's the way Ty Cobb thinks of this interview. On the other hand, uh, and the data is completely consistent with that, by the way. It is also consistent with there are open investigative threads and you genuinely need the president's uh, input in order to figure out how to proceed with those investigative threads. And it is also consistent with they have developed substantial information that suggests impropriety or illegality on certain threads. And they want to give the president a chance to address them before they make a chance, uh, before they make a decision as to how to proceed. So it's consistent with their 
getting ready to clear the president. It's consistent with they have an open mind and it's consistent with they have developed substantial evidence against it. But in all three cases, sort of you would be doing always, the same thing. Which we're, is always, we're, we're, we're always been like with we don't know. Right. So before we turn sort of to the, I think, the interesting question of, of Mueller's ability to compel and sort of the, the subpoena question, I, oh, I am Breaking curious. news from the Washington Post. Alert on my phone. Cambridge Analytica shuts U.S. and U.K. operations. Yes. That's a delayed uh, push notification. Well, I just for, it'll be even more delayed for listeners. <laughs> You're not going to believe what happened 12 hours ago. <laughs> um, I, so, you know, before we, we move on to sort of the the subpoena question, I. I'm interested. Why leak? What are our theories about yeah. why this information became public? I have. A th- that's a great question, and we've all kind of been Thank you, playing Shane. this. Game. It's a great question, <laughs> Susan. And I, we, so, of course, as reporters, we play this game. I think we all are playing it now, right? Uh, and my theory on this is it is leaked by either the president's current lawyers or former who are trying to persuade, or future former, or future former. <laughs> Right. Who are trying to persuade the president that sitting down with Robert Mueller is a very bad idea and that it's happening now, not in not uh, insignificantly after John Dowd, his previous lawyer who was in this meeting uh, where the questions were conveyed, has left. Uh, And we know John Dowd was very much against the president sitting down with him. The president now has new representation that seemed open to the possibility of sitting down with him. I think it's I think it's a way of trying to get the president to flag off. So so your idea is that they leak these questions. The president sees tons of people on TV being like, do not answer these questions. Do not sit down and interview. He would have to be such an idiot to do it. And that they're essentially trying to communicate with him through television. Correct. Hmm. Uh, Dumb question. But uh isn't this wildly unethical and this is attorney-client work product information? And Not if you're no longer his attorney, right? Well, you have a residual obligation. Um, and that, that obligation is, persists even after, after his death. But it doesn't persist, persist if you've shared it with, say, a PR person for the purposes of them leaking it to the media. Well, I, I, I think that your faith in ethics in the current moment is just so cute. No, I'm 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 not I'm actually not trying to be cute. I'm I'm concerned that the idea of a lawyer influencing his client by leaking uh, highly disparaging information about that client mm-hmm. that is he is actively under investigation across 49 separate areas that criminal investigators want to ask him questions about Mm -hmm. to the media so that people can tell him on television what an idiot he is if he agrees to answer these questions. That is not an appropriate way to communicate with your client. I got it. I got an even better than theory for you along those lines. Is it unethical for the client to leak the questions no oh, twist do you think these are from trump himself what if it were no the client is entitled to do whatever moronic I mean, thing he wants to do is, I, would it be that str- shocking to think that i mean I, I am purely speculating just so we're very clear i have i truly do not know where these came from is it that unthinkable that the president would leak these in order to then say it's so terrible look at what a witch hunt this is 
So, so the motivation is that he's read these and thinks you he's know they're, trying to they're wildly overbroad by getting it on Maybe. Fox and Friends. Or and look, and look, there are many people who clearly, I mean, in the past day or two, just in even my own conversations with people who've been following this in the news, think that Robert Mueller leaked these questions, and I've tried to tell them why I think that's almost impossible. It, this could be some effort to make it look like the special counsel is trying to leak the questions but in order to say, sit the, down with me. The New York Times story makes perfectly clear that the thing did not come oh, from Oh, no, Robert I'm Mueller. saying people aren't reading it clearly. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, that's all I mean, I'm saying. It's like I mean, half I think the country is not reading it I clearly. I think we're getting probably. into like the nine-dimensional chess. But yeah. what if he knows that we know that he knows? And then, right, I, I, I don't think we should – anything's possible. And, and who knows yeah. uh, how – Trump makes the decisions that he makes, um, a topic we might reach later in the, in the podcast. Right. I, uh, look, Trump is entitled to dish whatever disparaging information about himself he, he wants to do. I just want to put out that this appears to have come directly or indirectly from the legal team. To the, if you take the New York Times sourcing at face value, and I do because I think Mike Schmidt is a honorable reporter and i don't believe he would lie the story says that uh this is information communicated uh in a meeting between the Mueller people and the trump legal team mm -hmm. assembled into a list of questions mm -hmm. and disclosed by someone outside of the legal the trump legal team so what we know from that is that the trump legal team created a document gave it to somebody who was not part of the legal team who then disclosed it. Now, that could be intentionally gave it to that person with the intention that that person would disclose it, or it could be spread it around um, and uh, somebody leaked it. Yeah, the president could have given it to a friend and said, what do you think of these? And that friend could have given it to yeah. someone. What I would say is unless the client consented to the dissemination – it is wildly inappropriate for lawyers to be trying to influence their client by getting information on Fox and Friends. I, I just feel like that in the past 13 months, I mean, that doesn't shock me at all. All kinds of shit. It should out. shock you every time. Right. I well, I, yeah, yeah, hold on. I get that on what you're saying in terms of like not just letting it slide and saying that it's wrong. I just – all I'm saying is that it doesn't surprise me whatsoever. Okay. But hang on. I, mean, I haven't become inured to I, I, this. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to try to convince you that you should be surprised. But this is this document is a little bit different from the ones that we've seen before. This is an actual piece of work product, like presumably lawyer work product. It is lawyer work product with investigative details in it, and it shows up in the New York Times. And I think that's different from Ty Cobb whispering in every. Uh, reporter's ear who will listen to him what his strategy is or how he's trying to navigate a situation. I think that's different. I mean, this is actually, you know, highly privileged material. I do say when all is said and done, considering the fact that these don't, it, it's, these don't really give us any additional insight into what Mueller is actually thinking. I, I do think that the more consequential leak or, or story or piece of information is, you know, the confirmed story that Mueller has said that he will subpoena the president right, or has, right. has intimated that he will that he will subpoena the president, sort of um, setting off another flurry of, of analysis there. Um, you know, Ben, you sort of talked about your your that's time for some game time theory, for some game theory. Um, uh, approach to it. I. 
I do think that, uh, you know, seeing Trump tweet about Article 2 this morning and, uh, you know, the the powers of his office, uh, I do think it will be really interesting to see how they play out this question of whether or not they should voluntarily sit down for an interview in a situation in which they could dictate some of the confines or whether or not they're going to risk a a lengthy but probably ultimately unsuccessful legal challenge. Um, I I do think that that is the more interesting fight that's sort of shaping up, although I I think Rudy Giuliani has indicated in the past, I don't know, 20 minutes that uh, they are inclined to agree to an interview. Right. And just on on the question real quick of the subpoena, which we wrote wrote that story in the post, it seems like the threat of the subpoena then triggers the, you know, just the discussion about what the questions might be. And then that kind of gets us to the present moment that we're in. Taking all this into account, I'm just very curious as we wrap this segment, do you guys think it's, if you had to give odds on whether the president's going to actually voluntarily sit down for an interview, how would you peg it? I think that he probably does not. I think even taking those questions on face value, there are some to which the president literally cannot give an answer that is good for him. His answer either admits to, you know, uh, criminal wrongdoing on sort of obstruction issues or, or acknowledges that he has affirmatively lied to the American public or puts him in a position of committing perjury. So I, I think that there are enough you know, I don't think trap is a fair way to describe them, but I think that there are enough areas in which it actually doesn't matter what he says, he is going to pay a political or a legal cost. Uh, and I and I think his lawyers are right that, you know, the, the better course is not to sit down. Uh, and I can imagine them essentially saying, you know, they're going to fight the subpoena, not because Trump doesn't personally, you know, he would he would love nothing more than to, than to have this interview, but because he has this higher obligation to his office, right? You know, anytime that there's this paper thin pretext that they can put on top of things, uh, they tend to cling to that, you know, the sort of the, the classic Nixon strategy, it, all bets being off. But if I was a, a betting man, that's I would I would imagine that they're not going to sit down. Uh, I think the answer entirely depends on how much Mueller wants the interview. If Mueller wants the interview, he will get it. And he will get it because the law is probably, though not certainly, on his side. Oh, I said voluntarily, I remember. Right, I know, I understand. Okay. Uh, the law is probably, though not certainly, on his side. And that means, faced with the possibility of having to litigate it, if Trump believes he will is- Mueller will issue the subpoena, Trump will negotiate terms for rather than face the possibility of losing the litigation and being compelled and losing all his le- leverage. That said, I don't know that Mueller wants or needs this interview all that much. And so... You know, I think if Mueller's prepared to say, uh, fuck it, I'll just write the report and say you refuse to answer these questions uh, and here's the other evidence that we developed, I don't know that Mueller needs the answers all that much and may well decide that that the staring contest just isn't worth his time or energy. Let's all write down our predictions. Loser has to grow a mustache. (laughs) (laughs) excellent (laughs) oh god all right um speaking of mustaches no bb netanyahu doesn't have a mustache he could pull it off he He could pull it off he's that accent though (laughs) 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 
<laughs> yeah, with that accent. <laughs> like a foreigner or something. <laughs> no, he has a, he actually has a he 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 speaks uh American English but with this kind of um I I I this kind of indescribable um uh it's a vaguely New York accent although he's never lived in New York as far as I know he lived in Massachusetts. Um and uh it's a it's a very it's an odd non-foreign accent. It's a world accent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that world accent was on display uh, as Prime Minister Netanyahu this week gave a presentation uh, replete with big graphics and charts. Uh, and as we said before, a giant screen that said Iran lied. Um, this was the result of intelligence that Netanyahu said that Israeli operatives had, have, had obtained in a raid on a warehouse uh, in which huge numbers of files about Iran's nuclear weapons program had been held, and it reveals uh, that Iran did, in fact, uh, have a plan to and a program to pursue a nuclear weapon. Uh, my initial reaction to this was, duh, <laughs> we knew that. Isn't that precisely the reason that we did the Iran nuclear agreement? Isn't the whole point of the Iran nuclear agreement that, yeah, we know you're lying and you had a nuclear weapons program. Now we're asking you to not lie and commit to not having one now. And the, yeah, we'll just ignore the lie part is sort of inherent in the deal. Um, And it seems that, and many observers have said this, um, the presentation seemed not really designed to sway world opinion about Iran, but really as an audience of one, potentially Donald Trump, uh, and giving some kind of cover to Trump uh, this month when he decides whether or not to pull out of the nuclear deal. Is that too cynical a take? No, I mean, I, I do think this sort of flamboyant presentation, you know, with with the PowerPoint slides, I, I mean, uh, considering that there was really no new substantial information, um, you had U.S. you have U.S. intelligence officials, both former and current, coming out pretty rapidly and saying there is no new information here. There is no information here that causes us to uh, to change our assessment about whether or not Iran is in fact compliant with the deal. I I, I think that the most likely and, and most uh, obvious explanation is that this is about you know the audience of one sort of speaking directly to Trump. Uh, I think it does give us a little bit of a hint of the kind of the 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 under the surface battles that are probably being waged within the National Security Council within the intelligence community right now. I mean, you know, John Bolton's mustache emerging victorious aside, you know, we haven't uh, we are in a whole new world, uh, you know, with his National Security Council. And so I do think it raises really interesting questions about the president's thinking, whether or not he is amenable to input and process on, on, a, on a decision as consequential as this one, um, you know, or if he's or if he's winging it based on what he's seen on TV. Um, the implications are, are certainly disturbing, but I think that's clearly what the effort was here. There was there was a really telling moment, I thought, when um, shortly after Netanyahu's presentation, the White House put out a statement, I think through the press office, saying President Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu has confirmed what we all know and have known for a long time, Iran has a, a nuclear mm-hmm. weapons program. And they used the word has twice mm-hmm. and then had to 
correct it to say, no, we meant had. Had with the D. And there were some interesting, uh, and I think you've seen this kind of play out on social media and some of the reporting too, some attempts to even off the record try to say that it was a clerical error on the part of the White House. Um, I put out a tweet uh, that said, you know, even if you want to say that this was a typo and take the generous reading of this, that's a huge typo and raises the obvious question both about the handling and the comprehension of the information underlying this issue. If it's that the White House, if it's really that all these people working on this statement who would have laid eyes on that statement didn't understand why has versus had was the central distinction of the matter, that's a problem. Uh, If they were trying to deliberately make it seem like, no, we want people to think it's has, that's a huge problem. So it seems like you're, you're dealing with potentially two options here of A, manipulation of information and intelligence for public consumption, and B, just basic ignorance of what the information actually tells you. I agree with everything that both of you have said. And I think there is a little bit more to say for Netanyahu's position than this. Maybe not a lot, but a little bit. And look, the, the, the basic problem is that you're dealing with an actor that has lied on a pretty consistent basis Iran. about Iran, yeah, yeah. about its nuclear program. And the Israeli information is... I think, quite persuasive on that point. Um, And we are also dealing with a a regime under the JCPOA that requires, to a high degree, Iranian cooperation with uh, an inspections regime and a disclosure regime. And so you say, if you have revealed a whole lot of noncompliance with prior commitments and lies about prior commitments, what is your basis for confidence that apparent compliance with the current regime, in fact, reflects actual compliance with the current regime? Now, there are possible answers to that question, like that, uh, you know, that the regime is highly intrusive and requires a great deal of disclosure and that you it is it is penetrating enough that you're relatively confident that you would be picking up whatever uh, malicious activity is going on but if you gravely undermine confidence in the good faith and propriety of the of the actor on the other side to disclose what they're up to, um, you can, one consequence of that is that you may have much less confidence in, in the existing regime. Now, that does not, to me, answer the fundamental question that the Netanyahu's of the world and the, for that matter, the Trump's of the world have never answered, which is what the heck is the alternative? Um, which is why I think when even some, you know, even people like Mattis, when they're actually confronted with like, all right, tear up the deal, they're like, ah, it's probably better to leave it in place because we're here's what we're getting out of it. But I do think the, you know, having half a million pages or whatever it is of evidence that they are, you know, were lying for a lot of years about their program is a data point that is worth assimilating into the conversation. 
Right. Although that um, that doesn't necessarily count. Reportedly, this was briefed to U.S. intelligence officials some months ago. So there is the sort of question of, you know, do we want to ensure that the, the United States is, is fully aware as they're making the decision versus the sort of the pure PR aspect of it? Um, at least that piece, it, it seems uh, it seems more a, a symptom of this very particular moment of, of the ways both his lawyers and foreign leaders feel like they're they're uh, forced to communicate with the president of the United States. So I just want to read a statement from uh, Mike Pompeo that he put out after Netanyahu's presentation and then kind of talk about just briefly why I think it's significant. It's a long statement, but I'll just read one part of it. He says, among the flaws of – by the way, he also acknowledges in this that uh, the United States – has been analyzing tens of thousands of pages and translating them from Farsi and will continue doing this for many months. Uh, He says, among the flaws of the Iran nuclear deal was the whitewashing of Iran's illicit activities related to its military nuclear program. Iran had many opportunities over the years to turn over its files to international inspectors from the IAEA and to admit its nuclear weapons work. Instead, they lied to the IAEA IAEA repeatedly. They also lied about their program to the six nations who negotiated the Iran nuclear deal. What this means is the deal was not constructed on a foundation of good faith or transparency. It was built on Iran's lies. So going back to what I said in the beginning, yet everybody at the table knew Iran was lying. However, what's interesting here is Mike Pompeo, former head of the CIA, now head of the State Department, famously hostile to the Iran deal from when he was a member of Congress and somebody who is clearly very savvy and steeped on the particulars of this negotiation and the deal, I assume in ways that the president is not, uh, seems to want to be making a new argument here now, which is that there's some kind of original sin Mm -hmm. in the deal of Iran lying and that that should somehow – he's not saying it should null and void it, but can't you see him starting to try and introduce this kind of – line of argument that it was all built on a foundation of lies right, uh, is, is somehow seeking to invalidate it. Right, which is a shift from the original strategy, which is that Iran is non-compliant, right? They originally right. sort of tried to say, well, maybe Iran is non-compliant. That was shut down pretty heavily, you know, by by sourcing in the U.S. intelligence community and the U.S. military and elsewhere. You know, so I, I do think it is, it is a shift in strategy, recognizing that the non-compliance piece, they're not going to be able to get away with that. But this, you know, it was, it was, rotten from the very start, uh, that that might be the sort of the the hook that allows them to, I, I guess, save face as they decide to withdraw. Yeah. yeah, I think you're seeing the new the new line of attack maybe developing here. Um, okay, speaking of attacks, woo! Not nice. Woo! You John don't have Kelly. Anything nice to say, guys? John Kelly talking some smack about his boss. I'm just um, glad that when you know that. You know, Matt Kahn's comments about Susan and me have not been made public in a similar fashion because, you know, it, that would be embarrassing. It's it, it, Yeah, because I've heard that much like John Kelly, um, Matt Kahn has also called you an idiot. And, and Matt an has unhinged claimed, idiot. An unhinged idiot. And Matt has <laughs> also claimed that he is the only thing keeping lawfare afloat and standing between... Uh, lawfare and war with North Korea. He would not be wholly wrong on that point. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't mind if you call me a fucking moron. Just don't let it get quoted in the New York Times. That really is the, the issue. Um, so this story that uh, broke in NBC, uh, uh, top line by my, my good friend Carol Lee, uh, <clears throat> was full of, you know, kind of eye-popping palace intrigue. Although... 
not so distinct from uh, perhaps a, a previous uh, Carol Lee story, which was that Rex Tillerson had called the president a moron in a private fucking meetings. moron. Yes, that got We've amplified. We've already gotten the E. Let's later. just go all in. Let's just guys. do it. Let's get it. Um, but Susan, you had what I thought was a, an extremely smart tweet on this, which is to say that putting all of the palace intrigue aspects of this story, which are sort of, you know, uh, unavoidable and extremely rich and compelling aside, this is also then a story about a White House chief of staff who, according to NBC sources, believes that the president has gone off the rails and is not competent or up to the job, which seems to be the more uh, alarming story, uh, more so than any kind of dish about the smack that he's talking behind the the president's back. No, I think that's right. As soon as sort of this piece came out, there was kind of a flurry of commentary about who had leaked it and whether or not this meant that, you know, that Kelly had fallen out of favor with the president. You know, look, um, I say what you will about John Kelly, and, and there's plenty to say about John Kelly. Um, you know, he's not a he's an individual who appears to be able to understand the difference between somebody who is mentally stable or somebody who is unhinged. He's also a person who has every possible incentive to want Trump to be presented as, you know, a sane, stable, smart, together person, right? He he gains nothing from sort of maligning, uh, you know, his, his sanity or capacity. And so whenever we hear the chief of staff, you know, not just saying that he's an idiot, but that he has coming unhinged. And it's not just an, in a general observation, like that guy's crazy. It's following, you know, apparently reports that Trump wanted to withdraw all U.S. troops from the Korean Peninsula and had sort of a fighting match, a shouting match with John Kelly, in which Kelly ultimately prevailed, that that Kelly recounted that story, saying the president is becoming unhinged. Right. You know, look, in light of the context that we've seen, including that which we've seen with our own eyes, I mean, that phone call into Fox and Friends was really something else in terms of uh, what it demonstrated about the president's state of mind and sort of and mental capacity. I really do think we should be viewing this as a, a serious person, you know, raising a really, really profoundly troubling question. It also comes at the same time that Trump's former doctor, which everybody is laughing about as sort of a humorous story from season one reemerging, you know, with this doctor saying that this, you know, kind of out, outlandish statement from the campaign that Trump would be, if elected, would be the, the uh, healthiest president in the history of the world and, uh, you know, stuff that obviously was, was hyperbolic at the time. It actually wasn't written by the doctor at all, but the Trump had dictated it. That means that actually, one, he defrauded the American people during the the election season on an important question related to his health. That's really serious. Two, it means that the American people still do not have a credible assessment of the fitness, both mental and physical, of the president of the United States, a question in which we all are deeply, deeply invested. You know, so I think there's, there's sort of a tendency to want to treat these stories as kind of funny things at the margins. But to me, you now have, you know, high level, credible individuals appearing to raise questions here, paired with a lack of any kind of public record. The fact that this is sort of going unchallenged or isn't a bigger issue or story, I really do think is surprising. I think there is a remarkable record at this point developed of very senior officials of this administration uh, committing what Michael Kinsley once called the definition of, of, a, of a gaffe in Washington, which is when a politician with 
uh, reckless disregard for consequences tells the truth. And, um, you know, Rex Tillerson got in trouble for calling the president a, a moron or a fucking moron. And the, the, now the chief of staff has called the president uh, an unhinged idiot. Uh, those two are pretty consistent with one another, by the way. Ironically, the best character reference the president has is from Jim Comey, who, you know, disclaims having seen any evidence that the president was, you know, demented or in any kind of, uh, you know, state of, of, of uh, mental incapacity merely says he is morally unfit to be president, not mentally unfit. That's the nicest thing that any of these people are saying about him. And so I do think at some point those things do kind of reach a kind of critical mass, except that maybe they don't because none of these people are saying anything that isn't staring the American people in the face, as Susan points out in episodes like that Fox and Friends interview, but also in daily Twitter interactions. Well, and there's also, I mean, to the, to the point of <clears throat> you just said, are not saying anything. Uh, what, what I find, you know, striking about it, let's just say for sake of argument that the reporting is accurate, right? And I think that it's, I think the reporting in the Tillerson comments has been borne out at this point, and he never denied them. And while John Kelly is denying this particular story, uh, you know, it's it's the same reporters who are reporting it. I, I think you know, let's let's give them the the benefit of having been right on this before and having good sources. So let's say that John Kelly has said in one form or another something like this. It raises the obvious question of well, if you feel this way, then why are you not saying something publicly? Now, in Kelly's case, he seems to also be saying, "I think I've got this under control. I think I've got this in hand. I'm what's standing between you know chaos and a functioning White House." Um, I mean, I think I get questions all the time of why do you think that more people on the administration or in the White House uh, who see the president's behavior up close, the same kind of things that we are seeing publicly, aren't saying something publicly themselves. And undoubtedly, there's some amount of loyalty that's involved there. Undoubtedly, there's some probably amount of cowardice of not wanting to be the one to put your head above the trench and get it shot off. But it strikes me that for a lot of these people, there is a belief that they can restrain this or keep it together. If this is in fact, if what we're seeing on the inside or the reflection really is accurate, that this is, you know, a president who is bouncing from one thing to another and is not grasping uh, what's in front of him, it seems like he's surrounded by people who, who basically say, I think I've got this. Yeah, so I think there's a there's another theory or sort of a, a twist on on that same notion, and that's people who may have concluded that uh, it's better that the American people not realize what's going on, that to the extent that there really are very profound concerns, not dissimilar to concerns that arose sort of towards the end of Ronald Reagan's presidency, for example, mm. that, you know, the notion that you would pull back the curtain and say, guess what, guys, there is nobody in charge, that that would have the consequences, you know, regarding, you know, foreign relations and domestic stability. I mean, it would be, it would be such a, a terrifying moment for someone to credibly and in a way that convinced large portions of the American public that the president of the United States was not fit. Not fit in the sense like you're talking about whether grandpa gets to keep his driver's license not fit. I mean, really had profound concerns about their ability. And this is the person to whom we have entrusted 
nuclear weapons, the lives of hundreds of thousands of members of the U.S. military. You know, I think that the I think there is sort of a, a reasonable fear that, that you know, look, we're, we're better trying to sort of guide this uh, uh, in this controlled environment than, you know, ripping, ripping it open and putting it out in public because the remedy in that moment isn't necessarily clear, even if legally it might be clear. Uh, the response, what would actually happen, isn't necessarily clear. Mm-hmm. So, if you aren't sure that by by sounding the alarm, you are going to get the the remedial consequence that you think is necessary, then you've sounded the alarm and inserted this degree of chaos. You better have a plan for what happens next. If you convince uh, large portions of people, but not large enough portions mm-hmm. of people. Just as long as we're speaking about this issue, uh, I commend all listeners to. Uh, 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 to Matt Kahn's uh, wonderful uh, history of the 25th Amendment. This is the Matt Kahn which, episode. Yeah, this is the special Matt Kahn episode. But a number of months ago, Matt did uh, an extraordinary bit of research on the history of the 25th Amendment, including, by the way, uh, interviewing on the Lawfare podcast the uh, the last one of the last living framers of the Constitution, the person who kind of effectively wrote the Twenty Fifth Amendment, who's in his nineties and still has a lot to say on the subject, uh, and so both that podcast and that um, uh, that uh, post by Matt are are well worth your time. And what did Matt did you say as we were getting ready to go on the air that the person who these concerns about the president's mental fitness is supposed to be directed to, the White House <laughs> chief of staff. That's of, of great comfort to us all. And then he's supposed to say, yeah, the guy's an idiot. And then we all move on. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's move on to questions. We've got a couple of questions from yeah, our, so from we've our got, audience on so the here Twitters. Are, here are, is our Twitter question of the week. There's two of them this week. The first is from at JZED74, Gen Z, who wants to know, when will us regular punters get to buy one of those rat sack mugs that feature on the Twitter profile pic inquiring minds want to know? Oh. Uh, answer to that question is easy because that mug was designed by Tamara, uh, who is, as soon as she gets back from Lebanon, uh, we will uh, arrange to make that uh, mug publicly available so that people can order it. And I will try to arrange to have that purchasable by next week uh, on our show page. Great. Uh, so that is question number one. Question number two from Deke Cocaine Mitch Ship. What? Who, yeah, <laughs> who is Cocaine Mitch <laughs> at Uncle Decker? Yes, um, love him already. For Shane, it has been nearly a year since you reported the late Peter Smith's effort to find Hillary Clinton's emails. This week, Mueller asked for another 60 days before sentencing Mike Flynn. Do their communications tie the campaign to Smith's outreach to potentially Russia? That is a great question. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, in fact, the first thing I will say that I looked for in the 49 questions was, does it mention Peter Smith? Uh, And it did not, although it did mention uh, the very tantalizing question of uh, anything you, you know about Manafort's outreach to Russia which was sort of a head-scratcher because we thought, wait, when did Manafort reach out to Russia? Um, uh, But I think I've reported previously that Mueller has looked into the Peter Smith issue. Um, So I think there's a bit of a uh, to-be-continued wait-and-see aspect of this. I will say the fact that um, 
Mueller has delayed the sentencing of Mike Flynn could be potentially interesting. It could be largely procedural. I think it does seem to indicate, though, that uh, the prosecutor, prosecutor, that well, the special counsel, for whatever reason, is not quite ready to uh, kind of let Mike Flynn go, as it were, and still wants to keep him cooperating. Um, but to the Peter Smith question, uh, still a question mark and one that we are continuing to explore. So stay tuned. All right, so let's move on to object lessons. Uh, Susan, you want to go first? Yeah, so um, my uh, object lesson is a news report from earlier this week um, regarding uh, 10 Afghan journalists who were killed in a single day on Monday, uh, uh, nine in a bombing and one in a shooting. Um, the past week, or I guess it's it's felt like a month, but it's only been a few days, um, sort of related to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and we've had this sort of this constant uh, uh, perseveration on a, on a comedy routine. Um, I do think that it's a pretty dramatic contrast to really think about um, uh, what journalism means, uh, uh, the risks that people take in order to bring us true stories from, you know, places of, of incredible conflict, how important that is. Um, and so it just, it struck me as such a, a remarkable contrast, um, you know, a, a group of really incredible people uh, and just some a story that we should stay focused on and, and care about and, and remind ourselves to sort of cut through some of the noise uh, that, that we're uh, mired in these days. Here, here. Word. Ben. Uh, my object lesson while, while uh, Washington was doing that perseverating at the, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, I was in New York at the Tribeca Film Festival at the opening of uh, a, a, what will be a Showtime documentary by uh, a woman named Liz Garbus, uh, which uh, an incredible documentary um, about the New York Times in the first year of the Trump administration. And the, the Times institutionally made a decision to cooperate and let her embed with a camera crew and film all kinds of incredible stuff from inside the uh, newspaper as it pursued this incredible story. Uh, and uh, the... They debuted the first uh, episode. There are four, going to be four episodes. They debuted the first episode. And it is a remarkable portrayal of just the process of journalism uh, across a, uh, a large newsroom uh, with, you know, a significant Washington bureau, of course, and about 15 different stories that are all happening all at the same time. And it's a, you know, for those who uh, want to uh, think that the White House Correspondents' Dinner on Saturday night, as Peter Baker of the New York Times did, cast journalism in a bad light for that evening, I would say this uh, cast journalism in a remarkably good light. And it really showed a lot of people working hard to tell the public the truth. So I... I uh, it's the other side of Susan's point, you know, uh, sometimes uh, journalists get killed and sometimes they just do their jobs. And this is the, the uh, a really amazing portrayal of that. It's called The Fourth Estate, and I think it's slated to start running uh, later this month on Showtime. Uh I promise that Ben and I did not coordinate our objects beforehand because mine also <laughs> comes from Showtime. That's completely by Are accident. Showtime. Us? Our sponsor this week on <laughs> Rational, Rational Security is brought to you by Showtime. Showtime. 
Um, check or money order too yeah exactly uh so i mean listeners to the podcast will know about my my genuinely mixed feelings about homeland the show which i pretty much not really enjoyed although i've watched every single season um uh i think it's made very clear that i liked this season very much um the writers kind of just like threw everything in the kitchen sink into it and still it wasn't realistic enough um but i'm not going to say anything about the final episode if you haven't seen it but i just wanted to call out uh there is a speech that the president uh gives at the end of the episode i'm not giving anything away about it by talking about it um which I just want to give a shout out to the writers of Homeland, whoever wrote that speech. I think it is one of the most cogent and concise meditations on our political moment that I have heard maybe anywhere. It was just – it was kind of everything boiled down into 60 seconds. Uh, the delivery was was great as well. Uh, but – I recommend that speech. Take a look at it. It is something that you could look at completely absent of even the Trump phenomenon and say, yeah, that is pretty much a diagnosis of the shit that we're in right now. Now, when Shane uh, learns that actually the writer just borrowed the Gettysburg address, it's going to be a little embarrassing <laughs> It starts for with him. this like brain teaser, four scores, and you're yeah. going, how much is the score? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, props to Homeland, man. Way to bring it home, you guys. It's just, it's not often that a, uh, an action television series makes you stop and go, damn. I've never seen Homeland. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, just either. watch the current, watch the first season of the current one. You'll be fine. You'll get everything. The middle six are basically disposable. Oh, anyway, they're never going to ask me to be a consultant for Homeland now. I think I watched half an episode and was so outraged by the disregard of authorities, like yeah. like screaming at my TV, the CIA cannot operate domestically. The I best part is up. they love to make a big thing about how they have this thing every year called Spy Camp, where they bring former intelligence officials to advise them on plot lines. <laughs> they just maybe not advise them on tradecraft or legal process. <laughs> they advise them, and then they ignore their They the advise, advice. them, and then they ignore their advice. Yeah, seems reasonable. Oh, well. Well, what else is reasonable? It's time to wrap up the podcast. That's it. You've wasted almost another full hour now. You've been educated. We've educated you. <laughs> educated you. you. <laughs> oh, that does bring us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page if you look for it. Yeah. Looking at you with us. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Thanks again for sending us your questions uh, this week. Whenever you download the podcast from your favorite podcatcher, please remember to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out, and those have really been helping us build the audience. We're very appreciative of it. Our audio engineer and general star savant historian this week was Matthew Kahn. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patya Howell. Music this week by Ty Cobb and the Massacred Mustache. Ashes. <laughs> I needed an M word. I needed an M word. And massacred is How what you defeated. <laughs> no, no, like defeated. Like dejected. How about Mary? How, How about, about unwaxed? <laughs> <laughs> Stripped. <laughs> the straightened mustaches. <laughs> no, our music was performed by Sophia Yan, who I think would gladly back up Ty Cobb if he like wanted to take up, you know, opera in his retirement. Sure. Yeah, definitely. She would pro- She would not, however, cut his mustache. Too much respect for the mustache. <laughs> On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 